ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Breathe Life Bible. The Breathe Life Bible invites readers to put their faith in action as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, to address issues of justice with biblical truth, and to be gospel-driven changemakers in pursuit of God's vision of a community where all people are valued and cared for. Learn more at breathelifebible.com. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I honestly considered for about a nanosecond changing my son's name a few months ago because uh, for whatever reason, the Alexa device uh, in our home would activate every time I would say my son Samuel's name with the voice of Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, as the uh, Alexa operator asking me what I needed. And when I started having to spell Samuel to my wife so that I wouldn't activate it, I started to realize we're in a creepy new place here when we're trying to avoid this device, uh, even just to talk to one another. And of course, it has become much creepier since uh, out there in the world. News is everywhere about chat GPT uh, with uh, not only just the, the the sorts of dizzying questions about what are high school and college essays going to look like? Are these uh, artificially intelligent devices going to be able to write sermons, but also this really unnerving account of a, a New York Times reporter uh, chatting with the Bing uh, artificial intelligent uh, artificially intelligent chatbot in which the 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 Bing uh, chatbot wanted to be a human being, wanted to uh, be free uh, from the machine, and actually uh, started 
trying to convince the reporter to leave his uh, spouse to be with the chatbot. I mean, really, really concerning sorts of uh, questions here. And that's why I'm really glad with all of these things uh, swarming about to talk today to Adam Kirsch, who's a literary critic and poet. He's written uh, several collections of poetry and uh, he's published uh, in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal. He's with now. And he's written this book uh, called The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us. And I found this book fascinating because uh, in it, uh, Adam Kirsch deals with two seemingly really different uh, kinds of thinkers uh, in the world today. The anti-humanists, those who think that human beings are a problem. Uh, and the transhumanists, those who think that we can transcend and that we ought to transcend uh, humanity. And so uh, we have a lot to talk about. Adam Kirsch, thank you for joining us today on The Russell Moore Show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And yes, the the explosion of stories about this chatbot right when my book came out, uh, <laughs> there seemed something eerie about that coincidence. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, you talk about in the book uh, several uh, scenarios. You mentioned several scenarios in which a, a boxed uh, AI could manipulate human beings into helping it break out uh, by, you, you quote uh, someone here, by offering them a bribe or simply by uh, befriending them and winning their trust. And that that seems to be almost exactly what has happened in several of these interactions. I, I find that over the past several years, talking to people, especially in my tribe of um, evangelical Christians and churches and so forth, it's really hard to get people to think about uh, artificial intelligence and the way that that will change the landscape around us because it just sounds so science fiction-y. Uh, to people. How would you explain to people kind of outside of all of the tech conversations, here are the things that that might be changing really quickly for you? Yeah, it, definitely. I think when I first uh, started thinking about writing this book, and, and even when I first discussed it with the publisher, um, there was this question of, are, are these really important ideas or are they fringe ideas that a few weirdos have? And my take on it is that I'm not a tech person. I'm, as you said, I'm a, a writer and a journalist. And I really am thinking about these ideas through the lens of the humanities and social sciences. So as someone who's not in the tech world, I already see a lot of these ideas filtering through into not just things like literature and philosophy, but you can see them in in the daily headlines. You can see them in the way people respond to the news, um, either way they think about things like having children, uh, what will life be like in the next generation. I think there are a lot of um, very real concerns about the place of humanity in the future. Are we still going to be here in a hundred years? What will our place be? And will there be some sort of rupture uh, between the past and the present? Really, that's, I think, a lot of what my book is about. It's a short book, and it's it's sort of an exploration of a lot of thinkers and writers on these issues and introduction to their work. Um, but at, at the heart of it is this idea of, is the future of humanity going to be so different from the past that it will be like we don't exist anymore? It'll be this complete break. And one of the people I write about is a philosopher named Toby Ord, and he wrote a book called The Precipice. And I think that's a good image to use in thinking about this. His idea is that if you think of the human journey, the progress of humanity as, as climbing a mountain, then we're currently on a precipice and we can't get any further. Um, we are sort of stuck. And 
both in technologically and socially we're stuck. And there are two possible solutions to that uh, situation. One is to turn around and go back down. And that's what the human, the anti-humanists that I write about want to do. They see technology as a bad thing sort of from the start and maybe even see humanity as a bad thing from the start as something that uh, has upset the balance of nature and exploited the planet, destroyed things. It made uh, huge numbers of species extinct and that the only solution is for us to either disappear or at least radically reduce our control of the world and our footprint in the world. Then the transhumanists say uh, we are stuck. They agree with the diagnosis, but they say the only way to go forward and to keep climbing up the mountain is to no longer be homo sapiens, to no longer be human beings in the sense that we are now. And that means that we will either change our bodies and our minds or replace ourselves entirely with some new form of intelligence that can do things that we can't, um, such as uh, space travel uh, or surviving with far less demands on the planet, far less resources. So those two schools of thought really, I think, don't think of themselves as having a lot in common. One's, on one side, you have radical environmentalists, and on the other side, you have uh, tech utopians and, and Silicon Valley billionaires. But what they have in common is that both of them think that humanity doesn't need to exist. Uh, fundamentally, they think that if humanity disappeared, there would be no permanent loss uh, to the world or the universe. I think it's really interesting uh, right now, a, a lot of uh, conversations for obvious reasons uh, happening about Jimmy Carter, uh, former president of the United States. And I remember uh, a, a famous uh, conversation that President Carter had with a then president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his uh, denomination at the time, in which the, the pastor said to him, uh, I, I hope that one day you'll repent of your secular humanism. And uh, Carter later turned to Rosalind and said, what's a what's secular humanism? Uh, but that was at that time with the emergence of the religious right. That was the that was the big dangerous idea. Secular uh, humanism, human being is the measure of all things. Now we're at a time where the question isn't uh, is humanity the 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 sum of everything. That's not the that's not the primary danger. It's whether or not humanity is distinct at all. And I don't I don't think a lot of people have really noticed the transition that you make here. I'm wondering with the with the anti-humanism, let, let's start there. When you when you think about this kind of uh, question in light of I mean, think about all of the really dire apocalyptic predictions that have been made in the past about, for instance, overpopulation right. uh, in the 1970s. We're going to be at the place by the 1990s in which we don't have enough food to eat and we're, we're overcrowding. Is there, does there come a point where people start to just even dismiss legitimate sorts of uh, dire scenarios because they've they've seen so many of these predictions not come true? Well, I think that it's always impossible to know for certain what's going to happen in the future. And one thing that both of these schools of thought have in common is that they make very extreme predictions about the future that are set in a sort of middle distance where it's close enough that you have to worry about it, but not so close that tomorrow's news is going to show whether it's true or not. So um, a lot of people, for instance, are worried about climate change and there is an idea of sort of circulating that we have until 2030 to solve climate change, and after that, it will be too late. And that idea is sort of a misreading of a UN report, which said that if we want to limit 
the global warming to a certain level by 2030. This is what we have to do. And that sort of mutated in the public mind, and or at least in some parts of the public, too. We have until 2030 to fix this problem. So if you hear, if you listen to like Greta Thunberg, um, I think I, one other person I quote in the book is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying things about how younger people, people of their generation, have this sense that the world is going to end in 2030, um, that we, we're running out of time. Now, that is obviously the kind of apocalyptic prediction that's been made again and again in both religious and late, more recently secular contexts throughout history. Um, and so far, none of these have come true. And I don't, if, if you were, you know, my gut instinct is that this one won't come true either. But what I am writing about in the book, and the reason why I wanted to write the book, is that I think these ideas are really important and will have big consequences, even if they don't come true. Uh, in other words, even if there's no extinction-level climate change, and even if we don't invent an artificial intelligence that can replace us, the fact that so many people are thinking about these things and welcoming that idea, uh, I think that is real and is going to have real consequences for politics and society and culture in all kinds of ways that are interesting, but also uh, sort of ominous to think about. How do you think that uh, these ideas have been affected by changes in the way that people see religion? I think that religion is a big part of, of what I'm writing about in the book. Um, one thing that I try to say is that traditional sort of Judeo-Christian biblical view of humanity is that we are the seal of creation, right? We're, we're the last thing that God created. We are what makes the world very good. God um, put the world into our hands uh, as stewards and we have the sort of right and responsibility to use the planet for our own purposes. Um, then at a certain point among hu humanists and, and secular people uh, starting in the Renaissance, there was a shift of emphasis which said, we, you know, we're not, humans are not number one because of God. We don't need a religious explanation. But there was still a strong belief that humans are the most important thing on earth, that what we do, um, our values, our ideas, that's sort of where the entire interest of the world is. Um, that's where the future is determined. Um, and in both of those points of view, the disappearance of humanity would be the ultimate catastrophe. Um, it would be the worst thing that could possibly happen because a world without human beings would have no meaning and no purpose. And I think that that's the instinctive reaction that most people have when they imagine that future. Um, what we're seeing now, I think, in the last quarter century is people starting to say, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Maybe we wouldn't. it wouldn't be a total loss if humanity disappeared. In fact, maybe it would be better in certain ways. Um, it would be better for other species. It would be better for the climate. And uh, some of the things, some of the people that I write about in the book are, are philosophers and religious thinkers who are trying to think, well, if there were no human beings left on earth, what kinds of minds would there be? What kinds of consciousness? Would the world still have meaning? Um, or is meaning something that only human beings can provide? Uh, it, things only matter insofar as they matter to us. And I think there are a lot of people who are trying to, in various ways, overcome that idea um, to say that a, that a world in which there were trees but no people would be just as important and valid a world as the one we have. Or alternatively, one in which there were computers and no people could also be an important and valuable world. Is this something that is mostly just at the level of abstract thought? Or do you think that that in terms of the way people live their lives, that more people really are thinking, I, I won't have children because humanity's a problem. It, does it really filter its way down to that sort of practical decision? It's always hard to trace how ideas get translated into behavior and into the wider society. But I do think that that is happening. One of the things I talk about in the book is um, 
population falling. For a long time, humanity, we've been hearing a lot and we're very worried about population rising too much and too fast. And would we be able Mm -hmm. to support everyone on Earth? Um, Now, uh, demographics show that starting around the middle of the century, population is going to start declining because uh, basically around the world, people are having children below replacement level, except for a few regions. And in general, the more wealthy and educated a society gets, the fewer children it has. So the population of China, which is now over a billion, is projected in 2100 to be half a billion. Um, Most societies are looking at declining populations. And for most societies, most governments, that's a big problem. And there are all kinds of attempts to get people to have more children. Some countries offer bonuses or tax rebates for women who have three or more children or even two or more children. Um, But if your point of view is that we actually don't want to have as many people as we have, and maybe there's no point that we don't need to have so many people, there's nothing inherently good about having more human lives, then the way you approach all kinds of problems in economics and politics, uh, foreign policy, all those things could change. And I think that if you look at attitudes among younger people who will grow up to become you know, the leaders of tomorrow, uh, they report very high levels of anxiety about the future, about the climate, um, about wondering whether it's valid to have children, uh, if so, how many children. There's a very sharp divide here, I think, between religious and non-religious people. Um, these are some of the fracture lines where I can see real tensions and and conflict happening in the future. Uh, if there's there's already a lot of conflict about things like if science says you know you have to take a vaccine, uh, is is there any validity in opposing it? Well, if it becomes the con- the consensus that science says you can only have one child or else you're contributing to ruining the planet, you can imagine how that would be a really explosive. Uh, Point of conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one way in which these ideas have the potential to change history, even if they don't, uh, aren't verified as prophecies. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed, but all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. I was noticing uh, the other day, Garrison Keeler, Prairie Home Companion uh, host of of Back in the Day, uh, has a newsletter, and he was responding to readers and uh, they were talking about Wendell Berry's poem, Peace of Wild Things, uh, in which, of course, uh, Berry talks about um, when the, the pressures of life are coming in. He goes out and he, uh, he he's on the ground looking at the stars and he's in the, the peace of the wild things. And Keeler said, I, I don't like that poem anymore and I don't know why I ever did because there is no peace to wild things. Wild things will kill you. Nature will, nature will kill you uh, in the end. It's bloody and it's violent. <laughs> And I thought as I, I read that, well, of course, both are true. And uh, as a Christian, I have a concept for both. 
uh, goodness and givenness of nature and uh, fallenness and, and chaos within nature. Do you think that what we've seen in history, this sort of pinging back and forth between an overly romantic view of nature, of the, the world around us, and a, a really grim uh, view of nature and the need to, to overcome it. Do, it. Does that play into some of these conversations and the way that we see the role of humanity now? I do think so, definitely. I mean, I think that whenever humans talk about nature, we're really talking about ourselves because nature doesn't have a voice. It doesn't tell us what to think. It has no, you know, uh, it has no participation in our conversations. We decide what we want to think about nature based on really how we feel about ourselves. Uh, and one thing that I write about in the book that I think is, is really new, quite new over the last generation is the idea that nature maybe no longer has that power to console in the way that the Wendell Berry poem that you mentioned is talking about. Because when you go into nature, not because it's dangerous, uh, although, of course, it, it is, depending on, on where you are, um, you can see that in, in the earthquake last week, right? I mean, the earth mm -hmm. still has, has power that's far out of our control to, to destroy. But the way that more and more people think about nature is that it's no longer something powerful that is bigger than us, but actually something weak and threatened that is less powerful than us and that we are destroying. Mm -hmm. In other words, that nature is no longer capable of uh, inspiring awe, instead it inspires pity. Mm -hmm. uh, when we think of all the species we're destroying, the ecosystems, if you think of the fact that you know we have the hole in the ozone layer and we have microfibers and plastics at the bottom of the ocean, um, it starts to seem as though humanity is the most important force on Earth. That we're not sort of within nature, but we're actually shaping nature in our image. And that is the core of the idea that is is the Anthropocene, which I talk about in the book. That word Anthropocene uh, comes up a lot in all kinds of contexts in the humanities and social sciences now. Um, originally, the idea is that it would be a new geological era, that geologists would look at the record and the geological strata and say, you can identify uh, by looking at rock a point at which human presence on the earth uh, becomes unmistakable through radioactive isotopes, for example. Uh, and that that would mean there's a new geological era, just like, you know, there's an era of dinosaurs. Now there'll be an era of humans and it would be called the Anthropocene. Uh, that I think is still not accepted in geology. That's not an official term in geology, but that idea has spread like wildfire in all kinds of other areas because it captures something very central to the way we think about the world now, which is that we have so much power due to our technology that we are the most important force on earth. And, and in the book, I talk about a couple of examples of that. Uh, one is that cattle, the biomass of cattle, the weight of all the cows on earth outweigh all other living things. And that's because we breed them to eat. Mm -hmm. um, there are the population of chickens uh, is, is stupendous, enormous, um, because we breed them. On the other hand, species that we don't care about, we exterminate, mm -hmm. uh, and then they just disappear. So in, in, in that sense, we it's no longer that nature is, depends on the survival of the fittest in the evolutionary sense, but it's the survival of what humans want. Mm. Um, whatever we want is what will, will thrive, and what we don't want is destroyed. That is a really revolutionary way of thinking about humanity because it, it really makes us uh, in a place, it puts us in a place where we once put God, mm -hmm. that we are the most important thing in charge of the future. Uh, it's possible that we exaggerate that in certain ways, because obviously there are all, still all kinds of limits to human power. But one thing that the thinkers that I write about have in common is that 
they look at the history of technology as a sort of graph. Uh, and it, it is sort of goes up very, very slowly for many thousands of years. And then it goes up like a hockey stick uh, in around the 1800s. And since then, technological progress has been accelerating at such an exponential rate that there's no way to say that you know, this is where we'll stop. Uh, we really don't know what the future is going to hold. Presumably, our power could grow and grow until we have a truly godlike powers, for, ex- for example, immortality, which is one thing that the transhumanists mm-hmm. look forward to, that we would be able to manipulate our bodies or upload our minds onto a computer so that they, we would never die. And and I talk about some people in the book who say that they think the first people to live to the to be a thousand years old have already been born. Um, so these are our ideas that on first acquaintance seem crazy and they seem like science fiction, but I think there's a, a continuum between reality and science fiction and things that once seemed uh, crazy and impossible become true. If you had told someone 500 years ago that human beings would walk on the moon, mm-hmm. they would say that that's completely impossible, but it, but it turned out to be true. Well, and just, I mean, if you had said to someone 20 years ago, a, a, an average person, not a, not a scientist, uh, you'll have a piece of glass in your pocket that will immediately link you up to virtually every bit of information in the world. That would seem like magic. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, so it sounds like this view of humanity as uh, as almost pitying uh, nature is is sort of the reverse of the poetry at the end of the book of Job, uh, in which uh, God says from the whirlwind, uh, where were you? Could, can you, can you uh, lead out Leviathan with a hook and, and talks about all of the, the majesty of nature to say, feel small in, in front of this and see your limits. Sounds like both of these uh, views of humanity, the anti-humanists and the, the transhumanists, are both sort of saying, no, there's a different script. Definitely. I think that the idea of um, of human smallness is something that both these schools of thought think is antiquated, um, although their reactions to that are different. I mean, the anti-humanists, many of them uh, long for the days when humanity could feel small in the face of nature, and they would like to de-industrialize, de-technologize, and go back to that kind of relationship. Um, they think that Humanity has shown that we are bad stewards of the earth and that the more power we have, the more destructive we will be. Um, Some of the people I I write about in the book are uh, paleontologists who say this isn't a new thing. If you go back and look at the fossil record for 10,000 years ago, you can see that as soon as humanity gets into a place, it starts exterminating species. If you look at uh, how humans came to North America 10,000 years ago, within a few thousand years, all these species went extinct because we we hunted them uh, to extinction. That there's something sort of inherent in human nature, which is excessive and destructive and goes too far. We upset the balance that nature would have without us. Um, that is, is one way of responding is to say, let's shrink ourselves. The other way is to say, it is our nature to be excessive and we have to sort of follow that path. And we can continue through our current uh, situation, which might seem untenable, but we can break out into a better future by becoming more and more and more technologically advanced. Uh, we can reach heights that we can't even dream of today, uh, and life could be better in every way. So how one responds to this predicament, this human predicament, has a lot to do with uh, personal temperament or uh, how you, sort of philosophical convictions, but it also has to do with whether you think we can go forward or backward, which is the solution. 
Several years ago, I watched a documentary about Ray Kurzweil, yes. uh, with whom you you interact quite a bit in this book. Uh, and it, although it's been uh, who knows how long since I've seen it, I remember the very end. It seems like this is the um, maybe the last uh, scene of the movie, in which uh, someone asks Kurzweil, "Do you believe in God?" And his response was, "Not yet." Do you believe that there is a God? And his response was not yet. And starts talking about this this way of achieving immortality and really in his way of, of putting it almost something resembling omniscience and omnipotence, uh, the, the sorts of attributes that we we would typically ascribe to God with with Kurzweil and with some of the things that we hear out of Elon Musk and and some other figures in the in the tech world um, seeking some way of transcending human limits, are these outliers with sort of quirky uh, people, or is this is there more to the idea of transhumanism than people on the ground are really understanding in the way that it, things, of course, start in elite circles and then and then the rest of us catch up to them? Is this is this further along, I suppose, is what I'm asking than most of us think? Right. Well, what, it, there's a lot of differences of opinion on, on this. Um, one way to think about it is that these are sort of ideals and metaphors um, and that they they are more about the direction we're going in than where we'll actually end up. Uh, there are people who are transhumanists who, who are consider themselves part of this movement who point out that some of these things like true artificial intelligence have been predicted for decades and have not yet arrived. And then they keep uh, Nick Bostrom, who's one of the people in the book, uh, he's a philosopher at Oxford, says that uh, artificial intelligence is receding at the rate of one year per year. That every it's it's twenty years from the future. It's twenty years from now in 1970, and it's twenty years from now today. Mm-hmm. Um, that we we don't seem to actually get there. So one way of looking at it is these are illusions or, or phantoms um, that that will never quite get there. On the other hand, there are undeniable advances that happen sort of a little bit at a time, and that we acclimate ourselves to a little bit at a time. Um, and like the frog that gets boiled a little bit, you know, as the temperature raises a few degrees, um, we don't realize how big the changes are until we hit some milestone. And then we suddenly realize, oh, things have really changed. The the AI chatbot that you talked about at the beginning of our, our conversation is an example of that. I don't think anyone uh, involved with these chatbots thinks that they actually do have conscious minds. They're sort of imitating language in a way that gives that impression. However, uh, there are people who work on AI research. I think the overwhelming consensus is that in the next century or within this century, um, we will invent a true artificial intelligence. Uh, most people think that that's there's no theoretical obstacle to it. It's just an engineering problem. Uh, and when we have the right you know amount of computing power and the right code, you will have something that is like a mind that will have thoughts and observations and plans. Um, and it'll be very different from the kinds of minds we're used to. So, I, I would say I don't necessarily expect it to happen tomorrow, but I, I wouldn't bet against it. Mm. Uh, another example is genetic engineering. Uh, the tools now exist to engineer the human genome in, in profound ways, and it hasn't been done yet um, because people are very hesitant to do it. Uh, there's one example of, of a researcher in China who said that he had used this tool called CRISPR, which is a tool that allows 
uh, scientist to sort of take out and insert individual genes into the genome, that he had used this uh, to create uh, sort of babies that could not contract HIV. And there was instant condemnation, worldwide condemnation. I think he went to jail for a couple of years in China. So people don't want that to happen yet. However, I think one lesson of history, history of technology, is that once the technology exists, it's used. Um, people tend to use it first and worry about the problems later. So I think that all of those things are real problems in our future. Uh, Nick Bostrom, who I mentioned before, says that his work is philosophy with a deadline, mm. because at a certain point, these problems will no longer just be for the classroom. They'll be real world problems. Well, I mean, think about for a, for a moment how difficult it is um, to think about governmental regulation, for instance, of social media. Uh, we're in a place where all of us are recognizing something's gone wrong with social media in misinformation, disinformation, adolescent mental health, um, uh, a monopoly, a competition uh, question. I mean, there are all sorts of questions around uh, around social media, even before we get to the question of um, is TikTok um, a national security threat? Those those sorts of questions. But ultimately, we step back and say, what? What can the government do? Are we so far behind with social media? There's no way to catch up to it. Yeah. How much more so? I mean, if we're if we're thinking about uh, artificial intelligence and some of the the very existential sorts of questions that can come up with that, what could governments be doing now to uh, to help to curb the danger? Or is there anything? You know, I, I think that based on my sort of reading on this subject, I don't know if there's anything that can be done because like most breakthroughs, unlike, for example, the Manhattan Project, right? The creation of atomic weapons required a huge government investment, uh, tens of thousands of people and billions of dollars. And it was a national project uh, during World War II. Um, for that, you needed it, kinds of equipment and kinds of resources that only a government could provide. But that's not the case with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is an evolution of research that's already happening all over the world in thousands of places. Uh, it's sort of an outgrowth of existing computer technology, and many companies are heavily invested in it, as we've seen recently, uh, as soon as this open AI chatbot was debuted and people became very interested in it, immediately uh, Microsoft announced that it was going to incorporate it into its products and Google announced its chatbot. Everyone wants to be involved in artificial intelligence. And the truth is artificial intelligence doesn't mean only or even primarily creating a mind. It means teaching computers to think in all kinds of ways that can be very helpful. I mean, that can plow through huge amounts of data and see patterns that human beings can't see. Mm -hmm. That has all kinds of potential applications in healthcare, for example, um, and in business. Uh, so there's a, a really strong incentive to do this kind of research. The question is, will someone create something in doing this research that they wish they hadn't created? And after that, will they be able to control it? Um, that, I think, is a, a question that remains to be seen. Um, the, the way that technology tends to evolve, as you said about social media, is that it's created first, and then we see a bunch of problems with it after, and then we try to catch up to it. Uh, and that could very well be the case here as well, that we end up incorporating AI into various aspects of our lives, and only then do we start to realize the problems that it causes. Um, but by then, it's too late. I mean, if, if there was a, a button you could press to disinvent the internet, there might be a lot of people who would say, yes, I would like to press that button, mm -hmm. but it's impossible. That, that button doesn't exist. 
Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. There's been news this week about Replica, the um, uh, the chatbot, uh, having to uh, go in and change uh, some of the the settings to decrease sexual, uh, romantic uh, sorts of uh, interactions, and that's created a backlash uh, from customers who are talking not just in terms of this is a this is a a service, a consumer item that I don't want you changing, but but almost you're taking away a relationship that that I have. You're you're ending this relationship, um, this love relationship that I have. How how much of the way that we see technology and some of these questions of artificial intelligence, how much is that bound up with? human loneliness and disconnection right now? I think that that we have a tendency and have always had, there's, there's this deep human tendency to ascribe personhood to things. Um, you can, it, it's, that's the basis of idolatry, right? So you ascribe mm-hmm. a personhood to a thing. Um, I think that if we have a thing that acts so much like a human being, um, that it converses with us and tells us things we want to hear, it, it's very difficult to, say to yourself, this is not real. It's giving me things I want and things I need, but I shouldn't do it because it's not real. Um, it, it's maybe even the same logic as addiction, right? There's all kinds of addictions that people have that we know are bad for us and we shouldn't do them, um, but we do them anyway because they give us things that we want in the moment. And then later we might regret having done it, um, but we will continue to do it again. Mm-hmm. That is the way a lot of people feel about it. Even something like social media, I think, is that uh, people realize that it's, it has all kinds of bad effects, but they're not able to disentangle it from their lives. It, it's sort of necessary. Um, and of course, social media also has a lot of good effects too. Um, so I think that the, this need for connection and uh, you could say is is one thing that people traditionally found in God, uh, in the idea of God, that um, God is is someone who will always listen and always, you know, care about me and, and those things. Uh, but of course, God doesn't talk back. And if you have a machine that will talk back and will tell you all the things that you want to hear, that I think is going to be very appealing to people. Uh, it'll it'll take it would take a, a real act of faith to prefer you know the faith in a, a god that you can't see to interacting with uh, some kind of godlike being that you actually can see. Hmm. With the, with this question of um, basically eternal life, I mean, if you think of the the more extreme transhumanist figures, a, a Kurzweil or, or someone like that. Doesn't this really rely on a a vision of humanity that is ultimately machine-like? 
we're, 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 we're data. Uh, and, and if so, we can transfer data from uh, meat space, as some would call it, uh, into, uh, into the hardware of some other device. Isn't that just a very different view of human nature than would have been, for instance, the Jewish or, or Christian uh, view of human nature? Absolutely. And, but, but I think that one thing that I started thinking about differently in, in writing this book is that that idea that, that um, consciousness emerges from biological processes, that is sort of an inevitable conclusion for anyone who is a scientific materialist, mm-hmm. um, which I would say I am. Mm-hmm. That if you, unless you believe that there is, a, is a, an invisible supernatural dimension that we can't see or locate, but that is somehow responsible for our minds, um, then there's really no alternative to the conclusion that our brains generate our minds. And I think that's what all scientists would say, is that our brains generate our minds. And in fact, that's not even a a modern conclusion. It's something that the ancient world knew as well, though they didn't necessarily know how. Um, The idea that our, what we perceive as consciousness, what we experience as consciousness, is generated somehow by neurons, by electrical connections among neurons. Um, the brain is an extremely complicated set of connections beyond the power of current computers to emulate. Uh, we, we can't generate that many connections. But uh, presuming that it becomes possible to do that, then there are a lot of these thinkers have an idea that you would be able to transcribe the exact state of a person's brain at a certain moment, all the connections in a person's brain, which would be something on the order of 100 trillion uh, pieces of data. And then if you could find, if you could create a computer emulation um, to feed that into, that would be essentially the same person. Uh, it wouldn't replace you because you would still exist. It would be like a copy of you. Uh, living in an environment that was completely virtual. Uh, And uh, so I think that there's no theoretical objection to that in terms of, you know, from a scientific point of view, there's no theoretical objection to that. The only uh, barriers are are empirical. Can we actually do it? Um, But there's no uh, scientific reason to say there is an X factor, you know, which we call a spirit or a soul that we could never replicate using human technology because it is supernatural. Um, that, I think, is, is sort of inevitably where you have to end up uh, if you're thinking scientifically about human beings. Mm. And so what, what would, uh, would there ultimately then in that framework be a, a moral objection to uh, advancing in technology to the point that humanity as we know it now are, we're the equivalent of ants? I think that there would be lots of moral objections as to how it was done um, in terms of what if certain people were able to improve themselves to a vast extent and others weren't. Um, that's, I think, a very real concrete problem. You know, if, if tech billionaires are able to extend their lifespans by hundreds of years because they have the resources, but no one else is, that becomes an existential difference in power um, that I think people wouldn't tolerate. They wouldn't stand for it. Um, But I don't know that there's any moral argument that would convince people who want to do this to not do it. Mm. Um, I think that for a lot of transhumanists, they say, well, it's obvious that sickness is bad. um, Human limitations are bad. uh, 
and death is bad. But those are all things that we strive to avoid as much as possible and to cure as much as possible with every technology that we can. Um, so if you'd be willing to have a pacemaker implanted, that's a machine in your body. Or if you're willing to wear glasses, um, that's a machine that sits on your face, a piece of technology that sits on your face so that you can see better. Is there a qualitative difference, uh, you know, a difference in kind between that and saying, I will have uh, my DNA changed so that I won't get sick or I won't, I won't get certain diseases? Or uh, another technology that some of these people have a lot of interest in is, is nanorobots that you would be able to inject tiny, invisibly tiny robots into your bloodstream and they would circulate and repair damage to cells so that you wouldn't age or you wouldn't get cancer. Um, is there, you know, why would you draw the line at one rather than the other? Um, the only reason to do that is if you have an idea that human nature as it is now, the human nature that we know, um, is inherently valuable, that it shouldn't be changed because it is good in and of itself, um, and that and that doing away with things like suffering and death would be bad. It would be bad in, in some larger sense or bad, bad for us in some larger sense. Um, and I think that it's possible to make that argument and I talk about people in the book who do make that argument, but if you are in a real-life situation where you have the option to, say, uh, have a, a genetic engineering on a child, on your, your child in utero to make sure that it will never get Alzheimer's disease, uh, for example, uh, how many people would say no to that? How many people would say, no, I want my child to have the possibility of having Alzheimer's disease? It, it's somewhat analogous to the idea of there are, there are religious groups who say that they won't accept blood transfusions, even for their children. But uh, most people think that that is uh, wrong and, and condemn that strongly. So it, I can very easily see a future in which a lot of these technologies are looked at in the same way, that it would be considered immoral not to use them because they have the possibility to prevent suffering. I would not presume to ask you to give advice to those of us who do believe in uh, the soul and uh, who do believe that um, that the fundamental reality is spiritual and personal and that uh, God has uh, the, the word has become flesh and, and dwelled among us in Jesus Christ, that human beings are made in the image of God. But if you were to just speak to those of us who do hold that framework and that view of the world, what are the things that we should be understanding about how to communicate uh, in in a world that becomes more and more um, alien to that in in some ways. What what are the assumptions that we will have about how people hear us that we should undo? No, that's a very good question. Um, I think that how how to communicate across profound differences in belief and worldview is a really it's a much broader problem than than even just this. It's it's really one of the big problems in our society right now. Um, and I, I it is something that's very hard to do. It's very hard to uh, suspend disbelief in a certain way uh, and to say, how will this sound to someone who doesn't think the way I think? Um, one, with, with these this particular set of issues, I think that uh, the idea of human fallibility is something that is important to remember and that I think people can agree on across religious uh, beliefs, that whether one believes that it's because of uh, sin or uh, simply limitations of, of the human mind, that we don't know how our inventions will end up affecting us. We don't know how changes that we make will end up in the future. You know, you can change something small now and, and it can have profound consequences. So the idea of fallibility 
would be one place where people could get together to say, let's not do things that are permanent and uh, lasting changes to the essence of humanity because we might end up with consequences that we don't want because we can't see the future. Uh, we don't have perfect judgment and we don't always execute our ideas perfectly. Um, that, that, I think, is maybe the strongest ground for opposing transhumanist ideas. It, I think it would be very hard to convince a lot of people, certainly people who don't or who are, who are determined not to agree. It's very hard to convince people that they should forego um, something that they see as advantageous or even life-saving uh, or life-extending out of religious conviction they don't share. That, I think, is very difficult. But to say, if we were able to extend human life to by a thousand years, what would what would that be like? Um, would that be a society we actually wanted to live in? Uh, would it be beneficial for us? That I think is somewhere is a place where secular and religious people might be able to communicate and agree. And back to Wendell Berry, I think the question really is: Is life a machine or a miracle? That's the that's the question in front of us. The book is The Revolt Against Humanity: Imagining a Future Without Us. Adam Kirsch, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much. And listeners, uh, as we've been talking about this, a few uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about uh, artificial intelligence. And one of my former students, uh, Nick Moore, reminded me, I'd forgotten all about this, about an ethics question that I gave to students at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2007. Uh, and I'll just leave you with this question. It says, it's the distant future. You are 106 years old and in good health with a sound mind. Your great-grandson, Joshua, is a Southern Baptist convention now called the Galactic Immersionist Federation pastor. And he's seeking your counsel because, as he puts it, there's nothing about this uh, in the Bible. Modern technology has enabled infertile couples to engineer what the press calls robo-Franken-babies. These babies' bodies are constructed partially with as in the old uh, Frankenstein novel, with body parts from human corpses and partially with body parts produced via human cloning. These children are real flesh and blood in every way except a robotic brain. This cyber brain is programmed with advanced artificial intelligence so that the child is able to truly think on his own. He's able to express joy and sorrow, grief and gladness, the full range of human emotions. At Vacation Bible School, now called Reverb, Aiden, age 11, comes to see your great-grandson, the pastor. Aiden's parents are not believers, but he has been moved by the gospel presentation given at the end of Reverb this week. He cries in Pastor Joshua's office, often convulsing in tears. I know I'm a sinner, he says to Pastor Joshua, and I know that I deserve to go to hell, but I love Jesus and I want to know him. What must I do to be saved? And essentially, the question is... What do you say to your pastor or great-grandson as to what to say to that kid, if he is a kid? We have many such questions in front of us. This is Russell Moore. You're listening to The Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosbert. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. 
Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. 